0: I do think is that there is this process of recursive radicalization where radicalization on one side in some way leads to radicalization on the other.
1: Welcome to the Empire's New Clothes, the show where we discuss the forces that make and break empires. I'm your host, Brad from MacArthur. Today we're speaking with Eric Kaufman. He's a politics professor at University of London he's also an author and he writes about ethnicity national identity and religion and today we dive into culture wars what are they what's going on and where might we be headed to next eric thanks for coming on today
0: great to be here bradford
1: yeah looking forward to it so before we jump in we got some um some pretty hot topics. We might push some buttons today, but before we jump in, yeah, let's get a bit about your background. What um, you know, we were just speaking off camera. You're from Canada originally. You're living in the UK, and then maybe you know, what got you interested in these topics like uh, culture and things like this?
0: Yeah, so I am. Uh, I am from Canada, and I understand you're living. You know, probably about thirty minutes down the highway from where I grew up. Uh, but, <laughs> yeah, sounds like it. Uh, I live in. I live in London now. Um, London, England, where I've been for 20, 25 years, a long time. Um, okay. But I, I got interested, yeah, just in, in topics around national identity, because I, I grew up, actually, I was born in Hong Kong and lived in Tokyo for, my dad was with the Canadian embassy, really, and, oh. and with some some companies, but basically I grew up about eight of my first 10, 11 years abroad, so that, that kind of makes you more aware of um, nationhood, you know, is something different uh, you don't just take it mm-hmm. for granted. So I think that was kind of the start of my interest in, uh, in, in nations and national identity and so on. Then growing, growing up in Vancouver, like, you know, and like a number of places in North America where you had a quite rapid ethnic change in the sort of eighties, nineties, so on. Um, you know, that, that too was part of my consciousness as well. Um, and so, yeah, interest in, in, ethnicity and nationhood. And then my own background, I'm sort of, you know, part Jewish, part Chinese, part Hispanic. So I've always been a little different, uh, or at least certainly, you know, West Vancouver, where I grew up, which was a mainly mm-hmm. sort of British ancestry uh, community. It's, it's less so now, but that was sort of the background. Um, so yeah, I, I think all of those things just made me interested in this area.
1: Yeah. Well, let's dive in a little bit. What What is a culture? And then maybe wrap that into today, what's a culture war? Like, what do we mean when we say
0: this? Well, okay, those are different, you know, culture is a very loose and baggy concept, right? It's usually, (laughs) when you say a culture, it depends if you mean an, an ethnic group or a nation. A nation like could be the U.S. and Canada. They're more territorial, political. If you're talking about ethnic groups, that's about... Believe, groups that believe themselves to be sh- uh, descended from common ancestors, and usually they're marked out from other groups by one or more of language, religion, or sometimes skin color. Uh, so that is uh, these are two. These are different identity groups. When we're talking about culture war, however, that is predominantly a battle between two ideological, creedal uh, groups. So groups based around being a conservative or a liberal, being a Republican or a Democrat. So these are much more philosophical rather than ethnic or racial or national. Um, so they're, they're even though they use the same word culture, they're actually very different. And I actually, if we think about culture war, that is largely a philosophical battle. It is, it is not largely about white people against non-white people. That is That is not really what this is about. It's much more about you know, do you believe in, say, free speech or emotional safety as a a paramount value? Um, So that's the kind of culture war we're in. It's not to say the issues around ethnicity are irrelevant for the culture war. They are, but in a kind of a a sort of second order way, which is somewhat complicated, but we can get into that. Uh, I'll, I'll be happy to get into that detail.
1: Interesting. And then why, so why are we seeing a shift, I guess, is like, if I think about what's going on currently, you know, I think we are all asking ourselves why are so many people not tolerant of opposing views? And not that it's never been that way, but it just feels more prescient now. It feels like things are getting a little more uh, partisan, more polarized than at least when I was younger, thinking back. And then, of course, earlier than I was existing, you read and learn and and I understand that things weren't always like this um, in the decades prior. So why a shift? Why are we moving in this direction?
0: Well, if if you take the American case which is most advanced in the polarization, um mm-hmm. What you see there is it used to be the case in the 1970s and 80s that whether you were a Democrat or a Republican and whether you were a liberal or a conservative weren't actually matched up. Most people were, if you asked them whether they're liberal or conservative, they'd say they're conservative. Are you a Republican or Democrat? They'll say I'm a Democrat. Um, what happened between the 1980s and the early 2000s was that increasingly if you were conservative, you were also Republican. And if you were liberal, you were also Democrat and more Democrats became liberal. And and then all of these things lined up. Similarly, your views on issues. At one time, your views on abortion and the economy and guns and immigration were only loosely related. And that's still true for African-Americans, by the way. but, But for white Americans, their views have now lined up to fit the ideological package of the party they support. So that process has led to a lot of sorting. And that leads to the kind of polarization. So there are fewer people living in counties that switch from the Democrats to the Republicans. Most people are now living in counties that vote for the same party every election. So so that's happened in the US. Now, the only thing I would say, this is not just an American phenomenon. So you're in Canada right now. The It used to be the case, you'd have a lot of people switching from the conservative party to the liberal party at each election. Now that all that almost doesn't happen at all. And actually if you go even to Britain, um ever since really the Brexit vote in 2016 now, the Brexit remain Fisher is a kind of it's not as extreme as the Republican Democrat Fisher, but it 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 is has injected a sort of more divided the society feels more divided than it was prior to that vote. Mm-hmm. So what what's causing this? There are are factors going on 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 the right and on the left, I think, um, which we could talk about independently if you want.
1: Well, yeah, because that's very fascinating when you mentioned that the, what do we call it, the white majority, perhaps, is sorting in its own way, and then minority groups in the U.S. aren't. And why that distinction?
0: Well, that's a really interesting question. The I mean to some degree minorities had been it had been thought that for example African Americans are overwhelmingly democrat like or, or in terms of voting kind of 85 90%. I know that's gone down a little bit the last few elections. But um so one view was well they're already more or less liberal democrats and therefore um we're not going to we're not going to pay any attention to them. But but the reality is actually a lot of minorities are conservative when you ask them if they're liberal or conservative, there's a significant share of conservatives and amongst African Americans they may be conservatives, but they'll still vote Democrat. That's much less true for Hispanics and Asians, for example, who are have been shifting away from the Democrats since about 2008. Mm-hmm. Um, somehow I think that this uh, battle of conservative versus liberal, this ideological battle, this culture is, strongest in the white majority. They're the ones who really live and breathe this ideological battle. It's not to say it doesn't exist for minority groups as much, but it's less core to who they are, whereas their own identity as Cuban or as Mexican or African-American is, is more important, and so they would have more in common with one of their co-ethics, coethnics who has maybe a liberal and they were a conservative or who was a Democrat, they were Republican. That wouldn't mean as much to them in general, whereas for white Americans, the perhaps because the white identity is a little weaker, um, these creedal identities are, are more important for people, uh, especially, you, you know, left liberal Democrat Americans have a relatively weak identity with their group, with nation, and that's one reason I think that they're gravitating more to the creedal. Uh, for right-wing or Republican whites, their identity as white actually feeds into their identity as Republican. So it stacks, to use a term that, as recline is used, the ethnic and identity reinforces the creedal. For the left, liberal, Democrat-type person, because they have a weak identity as white, a weak identity as American, that would tend to sort of mean that these creedal identities are more important to who they are. So in both cases, you've got a ramping up of people going towards the extremes. Uh, but that's more of a white phenomenon and it's less of a minority phenomenon. But but what's, however, uh, the ethnic changes, the rapid ethnic changes in the population in Western countries. So in the U.S., 1960, it was about 85% non-Hispanic white and it's maybe now just above 60. Um, those sorts of changes have played into the, a certain kind of radicalization, particularly of conservative or right-wing right-leaning Americans have. Those changes are seen as threatening, but not so much their power. And this is something that the point that is often made by progressives that, oh, this is about losing power. I, I don't think that's what it is. It's much more about losing the country you know and are attached to and the identity you know, you know and are attached to. So it's a kind of nostalgia and attachment. Um, so those changes have fed into a certain degree of certainly a populist shift Uh, amongst whites, and the same thing in Europe. Um, And as the sort of conservative voting has, the ideology has become more populist, that has in turn engendered and fueled a counterreaction on the left, which is sort of what John McWhorter would call the religion of anti-racism, where everything gets swept up in, in this construct of white supremacy and racism. So you've got that kind of Iterative, recursive radicalization going on between these two forces. Um, and, and that's kind of where we are.
1: Interesting. It, it sounds reflexive in a lot of ways. Of so I'm hearing you say some of these groups on the right perhaps have lost their story or lost that identity. Or perhaps not the identity, but the foundation from where they Drew the identity and so they're needing to redraw that in a way am I off base there and then the and then the left is like counteracting
0: to that i I, I don't know I think what's occurred is you know if you look historically these ethnic changes almost always are associated with uh, a reaction a response so it's not exactly surprising I mean you can look at well you can look outside the west you can look at you know, black immigration to South Africa and the response of black South Africans to that black immigration. You you can look at um, the movement of, I don't know, Han Chinese into Xinjiang and the Uyghur counter-reaction. You, you know, all over the world, we've seen these sorts of um, ethnic changes in population movements. The Civil War in Ivory Coast in Africa is an example of where... You know, it was it was maybe a fifth Muslim, and it's now looking to be a majority Muslim, and and so you've you've got these sorts of dynamics in many places and times over history. That's, to my mind, not not especially surprising to see the kind of politics we're seeing. I, I think if you were to look at um, why it's happening now, uh, certainly in Europe post twenty uh, fourteen, you can see the a significant increase in migration uh, from outside the EU into the EU from about half a million in 2013 to a peak of just over 2 million during the migrant crisis. And that corresponded to a big upsurge in populist right voting. I think in the US case, you already had indications of uh, conservative or at least culturally conservative um, white Americans sort of responding to the ethnic shift, say in California with Proposition 187 in 1994, which passed. Uh, denying services to illegal immigrants, that was kind of a response to to a significant ethnic change in California. Now, there were powerful forces say in the Republican Party that didn 't want to allow that issue to come onto the national agenda um, and that that is because the brand of conservatism was more creedal. it was around promoting democracy, promoting uh, religion, for example, the religious right. it was about low tax free market type. So that what's called fusionist conservatism in the media wasn't just um, the Republican National Committee, but it was also Fox News and the right wing media really didn't want this issue. Uh, They were really trying to sort of go a more neoconservative and less of a what's called paleoconservative route. Um, And I think that helped to keep these issues regional to say Florida and California where the quickest changes were occurring and they didn't actually get national prominence until mid to late 2000s when the, the, these sort of issues broke through. But I think that is more, that more has to do with unique features of the American political environment that kept an issue which probably would have been on the table sooner. I mean, I remember the question a lot of us were asking in the early 2000s was Oh, how come this dog hasn't barked yet? This, this Buchanan, Pat Buchanan sort of issue around immigration and ethnic change isn't that surprising, given what we know of the rest of the world and, and Europe and so on. So I think the U.S. is somewhat of an outlier and it's sort, of, it's sort of snapped back to where I think probably one would have expected things to be. So I think it's less surprising in a way to see that sort of immigration restriction as politics, given what we know of U.S. history and also of other parts of the world. So
1: you're seeing it more as a driver from a cultural shift perspective as opposed to say an economic change, because there's a lot of people that they'll make a strong argument, you know, the uh, middle class was hollowed out because we outsourced our jobs and our manufacturing economy and all this stuff. But so are you seeing it a bit of both or more cultural as opposed to the economic shift?
0: Um, I, I think that, uh, you know, I'll be pretty blunt with you. I just think this is a almost entirely about culture. I think the economic – people love to say, oh, it's got to be both. Oh, no, it mm-hmm. really doesn't have to be both in a way that – I mean, there've been, there's tons of academic research, say, with survey data, which finds almost unanimously that your own economic circumstances in terms of whether you're employed or not, how much money you're making, uh, has almost nothing to do with your views on immigration uh, your support for populist right parties—it might have a small effect here or there—but compared to your views on immigration, which are heavily linked to things like your views on the death penalty, your views on child rearing, your so a whole set of psychological characteristics, your attachment to your your own group, ethnic group. So these sorts of cultural, psychological things are the drivers of immigration attitudes, um, and 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 actually that is you know you e- It's even the case when you ask people when you prompt somebody and say oh the u s is going to become white minority let's say you prompt people on a survey and then you ask them their views on free trade. their views on free trade get more cautious and, and protective in, in other words, the economic mm-hmm. attitudes are in many or or another example would be um you know how big and how important an issue is pressure on public services you ask uh Brexit supporters in Britain or Trump voters in the U.S., how important is uh, pressure on public services as an issue out of 100? You might get a 50. If you say immigrants putting pressure on public services, it goes up to 75 or 70. That makes no sense from the perspective of, you know, the proportion of the problem of pressure on public services uh, that is down to, to immigrants has to be a smaller share than the total problem. So the idea that the, the public services, pressure on public services is what's driving this, I think is is simply not true. Um, and, and you can see it in many ways, the impact of the 2007-8 economic crash versus the, if you compare that to the migrant crisis in Europe, um, the migrant crisis had a, huge, you know, a very large impact on a lot of populist right parties. The economic crisis had no overall impact. And I think these are just all bits of evidence that sort of really point to the idea that um, it's not the economy stupid. To be pretty blunt about it, I mean, this is really about um, essentially ethnocultural changes interacting with psychology, in a way, psychology of people's ideological belief system. So if you are have a particular ideology where you see change as as loss and and difference as in some way disorder, then you're going to be against these changes. And if you are uh, wired a different way in a way where you see differences stimulating and interesting, or you are very morally attuned to people being, uh, contravening a moral value, let us say anti-racism, that's what you react to, not not so much the change in your environment. So I think we're kind of getting... uh, It's very much cultural psychological is the way that I think the data, uh, reads it.
1: Interesting. And you know, what, what's of course fascinating is that both sides seem to have a winner take all mentality and either they dictate what's right and wrong completely or they've lost completely. That seems to be the perspective of of both sides. How do we become more tolerant, um, going forward? Like, is is it even possible from where we stand? Or do we need some kind of, uh, I don't know what to say, like a a more of a crisis, and then we can work things out? Or can we literally
0: just start working in a more tolerant direction from here? Yeah, it's a really hard one. I mean, the problem is you see craziness on the left, craziness on the right. I mean, I think anything, anytime we can move towards reason and freedom of speech, that is going to improve things. Um, And I think, you know, so that some of the illiberalism, particularly on the progressive side, because one, one of the issues is that, I mean, you've got this craziness of the right, and, and certainly the Republican Party, you know, they, they, they bear a responsibility for talking up things like the election was stolen and whatever. Um, so there's, there's big responsibility, perhaps, on the Republicans to kind of try and, you know, be more fact and reality-based. But on the other hand... Uh, So many of our elite institutions have gone in for um, activism, I would say. I mean, certainly coming from the university sector, um, it is saturated with what I would call cultural socialism, this idea that what you might think of as identity politics, that race, gender and sexual identity, uh, the claims made on behalf of um, historically marginalized race, gender and sexual identity groups are never scrutinized. Scientifically rationally, so there 's a suspension of disbelief when it comes to certain topics, and if you transgress sacred values around those topics you 're more or less liable to cancellation. That culture has taken root in, in publishing in universities in sections of the media in arts um, and and increasingly into public bodies and bureaucracies and corporations. Now, those those being the elite institutions of the society, if they are being captured by Iraq, a politics of unreason like this, then I think quite naturally that's going to lead, A, to a loss of trust in these uh, organizations, and B, to a breakdown in uh, the consensus around the fact-based and what, what Jonathan Rauch would call the um, constitutional of knowledge, the kind of reality-based order is being eroded in these institutions by the left, and then also, or maybe as a reaction, perhaps, or perhaps with its own dynamic on the right, you've got the the erosion of the truth-based, reality-based order happening in the Republican Party, let's say. and so, yeah, I think it's happening from both sides, but I guess I would see the, the left and progressivism as being more influential in the culture because they dominate the elite institutions, and I think they have a responsibility to dial back the, the, uh, the activism, the, the, what they would think of as moral leadership, but what, you, what is essentially just a raw exercise of cultural domination, in, to dial that back and to actually start supporting freedom of speech and scientific reason. I think that is the first thing that has to happen, because I think when you have corrupted the elite institutions, I think that just throws the entire society into disarray and just sows distrust across the board. Now, if they can clean up their act, then I think they've got a better claim to say, hey, we're supporting free speech and reason. How can you be essentially making irrational claims? And I think there would be, I think, a greater degree of trust if that was done. Uh, more people would say, "Okay, so the, these elite institutions do stand for these core values, enlightenment, enlightenment values." Actually, we can be a bit more critical of what the right is doing.
1: Yeah, well, there's definitely a lot of contradictions on both sides, as as you've kind of pointed out in that. What was the term you just used? Suspension of disbelief. Right. Um, <laughs> it It seems it seems quite prevalent on both sides, and. And, th- and that's the conundrum moving forward is, you know, I spoke with this guy, David French a bit ago, and he made the really good point that the right's not going to change the left. The left's not going to change the right. They must change from within. And that that's kind of stuck with me. And so I- I'm unsure how the left can change from within. I'm unsure how the right can change from within because inside dissenters are attacked so viciously. Um, as being like a traitor and off culture, so I'm I'm I, I I like I'm very open and I want to see ways we can do that, but I'm unsure how these these culture groups can work within themselves to get back to a more reasonable center.
0: Well, one thing I do think is that there is this process of recursive radicalization where radicalization on one side in some way leads to radicalization on the other. And you can see that even in news coverage, and I'm have got a, I'm working on a paper now where you can see just the use of extreme language to characterize the other side. I mean, it's sort of one side does it, then the other side does it, and they're kind of riffing off each other. I mean, I, I guess I would say, I mean, David French has a point there clearly now, that, but how do we get back to a situation where we're dialing down the the temperature. Um, and I guess I would say I put a lot of, um, I really do fault the sort of progressive liberal side um, because there's a number of, because I think actually, even though we are talking about wokeness and woke culture since about 2015, I think even prior to 2015, going right back to the late 60s, you can see that essentially anything around race and gender and sexuality, although it was more, more about race initially and a bit about gender, those topics already had powerful taboos around them from the late 60s onwards. So already the application of reason and proportion was already vanishing from those topics uh, in, in, on the left and increasingly on, on the left liberal side in major institutions from the 60s. It was You couldn't easily have a a conversation about the the pace and scale of immigration, the cultural impact of of immigration, for example, from that date onwards. Yes, people weren't necessarily being hounded from their jobs the same way they are now, although there were instances, for example, people who wanted to argue about the role of heredity in in terms of psychological traits. Let's leave the race stuff out of it, but just in terms of how heredity... uh, um how genetic, for example, is schizophrenia, for example, or even arguing about that was considered eugenics and whatever I mean, there was an t- attempt to shut down debate by making analogies to you know the Nazi period to whatever um so I think the rot was already there. I mean, what we actually need is to have a balanced debate over you know instead of saying you 're either open or you 're closed, if we take the immigration ethnic cultural change question no actually. The way we should be framing that debate is you're in favor of faster or slower and we've got to come to an accommodation and we've got to come to a number and a rate of change that's, that's a midpoint for the population. Instead, the way it's framed is if you want slower, you are in the closed box, you're a nativist and a racist. That kind of way of arguing has, I would argue, been around since the late 60s. I don't think that's a post-2015 development. So I actually think... Part of what happened was that the taboos around discussing these subjects around those core identity topics were already in place. Even though you didn't have the sort of waves of craziness around canceling, you still had the substructure of political correctness in place. What that does is it takes certain topics off the democratic agenda. And when the mainstream parties cannot talk about immigration levels because of a taboo, then the only people who are going to talk about those immigration levels are people who are willing to cross the red line. And and that is a populist party in Europe or a populist individual like Pat Buchanan or, or Donald Trump in, in within the Republican Party. So you are essentially, it's a bit like if you're only selling one color pair of pants in your department store, there's going to be a black market pop-up selling the blue jeans and everything else people want. And and that, so buy Essentially shutting down debate on a number of topics people really care about and calling it racist or, or sexist or whatever. You, all you're doing is creating populism, and that then ratchets into polarization. So we actually need to to unpick some of these taboos. Turn that. Yeah, we still have to have some taboos, but they should be shades of gray going into black rather than black and white. Um, mm-hmm. And right now it's very black and white, and we have the progressive left pushing for an increasingly binary interpretation of a lot of these questions. I think if we were able to kind of unpack that and make more questions about reason, where you could you, know, you could raise questions about the rate of, you know, it could be the rate of cultural change, or you might have a theory, uh, you know, we could talk about the sources of group inequality, we could do it scientifically, you might argue that it's about discrimination, you might say, well, no, it's not about discrimination, but in an open climate, that would be legitimate Argument to make. Hey, I've got some data and I'm going to argue that it might be family structure, it might be something else. That's what's really driving this. We don't have that and haven't had that kind of an open discussion for a long time. So I think until we get to that more free and open discussion of of topics people really care about, I just don't see this dialing down. And I'm afraid I think that the progressive side bears an awful lot of responsibility. Now, they don't bear all the responsibility. I mean, clearly. I think the right is 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 nuts on a number of issues. Um, I mean, but but I wouldn't. I would I would want to be able to have a debate over guns and and abortion and the environment and vaccines and all these things. Uh, a respectful debate. I, I think if you are able to sit, lead by example and say, well, we're going to have a respectful debate on race, gender, and sexuality. Now, how about you have a respectful debate about? abortion and guns and all these other things. And I think if that were were created, you could rebuild a more rational free speech culture and less of a cancel culture.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's great. And I think that's a good through line to a lot of the theories you laid forth in your book. But before we go there, I want to almost take like a little, not not an intermission, but you've made some great critiques of the left. Maybe highlight a few well thought out critiques of the
0: right. Well, I mean, How I think the critiques of the right. I think the what I'm against is sort of sacralizing issues, which turns them into a black and white. If you transgress, then you've committed heresy, right? So I think, to my mind, an issue like you know, abortion, an issue like uh, guns or vaccines or whatever, I mean, these are all areas where I would see a lot of unreason on the right. So, but now, abortion is a tough one because obviously some people – But still, I don't think you can take the position that, you know, a fetus is a life and that's the same as murder, just like I don't think you can take the position that it's a woman's right no matter what, no matter – you know, she's got a right to – I think those are very binary type positions that will just lead to, um, you know, a a breakdown uh, essentially of any kind of understanding. You have to be able to say, well, there's a sliding scale and there's different considerations that come in as we move from sort of three months to six months and whatever – uh, and, and so we'll find an optimum point here. It's like with immigration, you know, we, we're not going to have zero. We're not going to have open borders. We're going to come to an optimum number that, that people agree with. Uh, and, and it's not about you're either open or you're closed. So getting away from these binaries. Um, and and equally on the right, yeah, I mean, we can talk about I, I don't think you can contest, you know, get, getting worked up about some people voting when they shouldn't be. Yeah, of course, we have to have rules which um, try and control, uh, you know, you can't have people voting multiple times and dead people voting. And yeah, of course. So let's, again, we can come to a sensible agreement, but let's not make claims that, you know, courts have rejected, like, I don't know, 60 times courts have ruled against this idea that the election was stolen. Come on. I mean, you've got to accept the legitimacy of a sort of rational process of fact finding. So I think there's, yeah, I mean, there's problems, <laughs> I think, on, on both sides, right? And I think, you know, different countries differ in this. I mean, I think, for example, the conservatives in Britain have a lot fewer of the, what I would consider to be irrational blind spots. Um, I, I think there are, it's much more moderate, whereas I think more, in Britain, you could say the problem is very much more of a of a left-wing problem, whereas I think in the U.S., there's pro- there's a lot of problems on both sides. Um but it just depends on what the issue is. I mean, people can get – they can sacralize capitalism. They can sacralize the state, even though those don't tend to to lead you to be canceled. So they're not as extreme. But they, they, people still invest a lot of uh, religious significance in these entities. And I think we, the, the, the more we can back off that, the better.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I guess just to press a little more in that direction before we move on, how does the right shed and and move a different du- a direction away from these conspiracies? Because it seems like it's it's being treated more as an opportunity of oh there's this really large theory let let's pick one QAnon it's very large that people are rallying behind they're very passionate let's align ourselves with a few nudges and winks with those. Uh, narratives to then have a large group of passionate voters. How how does the right move away from that?
0: Well, I think you're always going to have extremists, right? And I think QAnon actually doesn't have a, I mean, as a percentage of the total Republican vote, I think it's quite small, but something like anti-vax would be larger. And I've kind of sure. been a bit disappointed with uh, how some right-wing commentators who I used to respect have gone down that road and it's all, but I look, I mean, it's very legitimate to question the bat, the trade off between how much we lock down and what, how much we restrict uh, versus what is the actual risk to, to, to the spread of the, to the virus and the number of people dying. We, we should be able to have that as a rational optimizing conversation, not some kind of a an all or nothing, right? It's, so, but I think these things are recursive. So I think that the more one side can can clean up its house, the more it can then make the claim to the other side to clean up its house, and so the key is to restrain the wilder elements. But but you know we we have to allow freedom of speech. I don't think we should be censoring anybody. But what we need to do is I think try and elevate a, a evidence based, science based uh, way of arguing, a sort of analytic based of way of reasoning. Uh, that isn 't about slogans and it 's just not about shouting mm-hmm. but it 's actually about evaluation of evidence, uh, preponderance of evidence, and an acceptance of some kind of epistemic humility and and that 's and, and trying to find an accommodation and optimization and i think if if we can model that in on both sides, then I think we will move ahead i I think that i mean I think that within the right. There are more people who are critical of their crazies than within the left. I mean, there are some within the left who are critical of the excesses of the woke movement, but I think it is a smaller proportion who are willing to to verbalize Mm -hmm. those criticisms. And, And in a way, so a lot of conservative intellectuals will be critical of the claims that the election was stolen, for example, um, whereas I, 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 it's less common to see criticisms of the Black Lives Matter movement you know. of of rioting in front of a court or demonstrating in front of a courthouse to get a verdict, you know, when you have the president endorsing that kind of behavior, which is really undermining the validity of due process in the legal system. You know, I, I think it's just, I think there's there's a lot more modeling that needs to be done amongst sort of your moderate left vis-a-vis the radical left. Now, that's starting to happen. It is starting to happen. uh, But essentially, people who, who criticize the woke left from within the left get ganged up on and aren't really defended properly in many cases. Whereas I think it's within the right, it's much more legitimate to say, now not within the Republican party, if you want to get elected, there, there is conformity. You can't criticize Trump, you know, yeah. which is, that is irrational. And, and But say within the kind of intellectual space to, to say, come on, you know, the election wasn't stolen. This is ridiculous. I mean, you can say that you're not going to get sort of drummed out as easily as you would if you were on the left and you criticize BLM. Uh, so I think there are different asymmetries there. And, and all I can say is each side has to start cleaning up their own house. And I think it'll have a salutary effect on the other side. And hopefully we Mm -hmm. can get back towards that truth-based order.
1: Yeah, I I sure hope so. I'm I'm not sure that I see that on the right, that it's easier to dissent. I guess I'm thinking of um, cultural figures like um, evangelical preachers and stuff. If they move away from what is um, unofficially defined as cultural doctrine, they're certainly vilified. Um, but yeah, you know, you make a, you make a really good point. That would be such a cool study of what percentage of each side are vocal or silent dissenters. I would love to see those numbers. That would be fascinating.
0: Yeah. I, I, you I, th- I think that, oh God, I've seen so much data on so many different facets of this, like. For example, you can see that um, in the U.S. there was the FIRE database of 25,000 or 20,000 college students. You know, the more conservative campuses, the more left-wing students say they self-censor. In the more liberal campuses, which is most, the conservative students self-censor. The numbers look pretty similar. Um, There is some evidence, though. There is evidence that Trump... Voters self-censor more in Democrat environments than Democrat or Biden voters self-censor in Republican work environments. So there is some asymmetry in, in on some of these things. Um, but you're right. I mean, probably it depends on the environment you're in. If you're in the Republican Party and you want to contest the idea that the election was stolen, which is like, is a no-brainer in a way, for that to be hazardous to your chances. So that is clearly a, an enormous problem. And how do you actually... Get out of that, right? Um, but I would just say, yeah, it probably depends on the milieu you're on, you're in as to how strong the conformist pressures are. Um, you know, I, I'm trying to think. The thing is, in terms of a workplace, probably even in, in a heavily Republican workplace, you know, you could be a Democrat. You can probably voice a lot of opinions. Uh, I, I don't know. I guess I would think your chance of being drummed out of your job is, is lower than if you are expressing certain conservative opinions in a very liberal workplace. So I think the very liberal work pl- or not liberal, very left-wing workplaces tend to be perhaps somewhat more censorious. And I think we see some echoes of that in some of the opinion survey data around, would you date uh, someone from the other party? Would you want your child to marry someone from the other party? Um, some of this data shows that in these sort of very progressive dominated spaces, there's there's extremely highly high intolerance. Now, mm-hmm. I'm not saying that there aren't equal, you know, conservative places that are very intolerant, but somehow there's a moral charge to it which is linked to being canceled in, in a sharper way perhaps in these uh heavily progressive elite spaces. And and I think that is a, To me that's sort of an obvious place to start. At least as an overture. You can say okay, well, we're we're going to really take on the irrational, uh, irrationality of cancel culture. In exchange, would you please, you know, drawing inspiration from our attempt to implement an enlightenment-based order, can you try and at least deal with evidence and the preponderance of, of evidence when we're talking about an election being stolen? Um, I, just as a way of... kind I do think you would get into a positive spiral. You're never going to convince... Yes, there are people who are <laughs> unfortunately probably irrational and conspiracy-minded you're never probably gonna reach them. But I think they're actually a minority on on all sides.
1: Yeah, I'm into a positive spiral, (laughs) like let's get there. (laughs) So to pivot a little bit, I'd like to, I was asking earlier about what's the difference between the cultural shifts and the economic shifts, but I wanna bring that into the political and the cultural looking at race, because that is, it is just a massive part of the American story. And the way that I'd like to, well, how do I phrase this? So in the U S historically white America has often dealt with the issue of race politically, but not culturally. And so I guess I'll, I'll put that as like 1808, the slave trade ended. And so it's more like, great. We've dealt with it from the white America perspective yet for 50 years, The uh, number of slaves still rose astronomically. So it clearly wasn't dealt with on a perhaps cultural basis. Um, Civil war, great, we've dealt with it. But then there's Jim Crow and there really wasn't much change, perhaps. Uh, Civil rights, great, we've dealt with it. And so the question is, how much of the current culture wars is fueled by a desire to resolve race from a cultural perspective, not so much the political perspective?
0: Well, I mean, you're, you know, there is this sort of process of, um, you know, it's it's a sort of glacial advance from s- the ending of the slave trade through to civil rights. Um, I think you've got to go with hard indicators that are properly, um, you know, what's, what's the word that survive falsification that can be used for testing. So, I mean, looking at uh, the number, you know, the number of police shootings of of unarmed black people, the over time, or the interracial marriage rate, or the number of people who say they don't want to have a black boss, or any of these indicators, all show you know dr- dramatic improvement. Now they're not down to, you know, they're not perfect, but I am skeptical as to how much further one can go on some of these indicators. Now you can always look at there are you know i'm very much of a fan of of quite uh, nuanced scholarship so for example um work by i think it's roland fryer who who shows that you know there isn't a discrepancy in terms of the likelihood of police shooting uh black people as opposed to white people when you account for um a whole series of factors including the the murder rate within the different groups and the encounters with police but there is a discrepancy in terms of roughing up suspects so that that would be okay let's look at Roughing up suspects. Now, let's perhaps entertain some counter arguments that this isn't about racism. Let's see if we can refute those. And then the racism argument will grow stronger. And then we can think about, okay, what policy measures might we take? You know, body cams uh, could be one example or new types of training or whatever. So we can try and actually reduce that in an incremental way as, as fast as we can, as cost effectively as we can. I mean, that's kind of the approach that I would like to see instead of sweeping statements about, oh, you know, this is systemic, this and institutional that and unmeasurable sweeping theories, right? These sort of shadowy forces you can't measure, but they somehow grab a hold of your brain. And even though we don't know about it consciously, we're being biased. All of these, uh, these are in my views, meta theories that are not measurable and falsifiable and therefore are unscientific. That's really what a conspiracy theory is like, is it posits unseen in a way that you're, these unseen forces, uh, are, and which we're, we'll put a name on, like white supremacy, are somehow leading to discrepancies. Instead of actually intelligently trying to kind of say, okay, here's five or ten different explanations for why there's a, a difference in group outcome. Of, of some form or another, whether it be wealth or whether it be stop and search or whatever. And we're gonna evaluate these systematically. I think the idea of disparate impact is an extremely negative one, this idea that just because there's a difference in terms of group outcomes, uh, ipso facto, the thing must be racist. I think that is a violation of, of reason actually, because the whole idea of racism is that it's, uh, it's intentional. It's gotta be intentional in some form um, in, and it has to be measurable in some form. Uh, Now, to have effects that are disparate, I mean, every policy is going to have a disparate effect. You know, higher tax rates are going to hit Jewish Americans harder than Christian Americans. But does that make make them anti-Semitic? Well, no. I mean, you have to kind of – I think we need to get away from some of the kind of reasoning that is – just takes any group-based disparity and and immediately reads some kind of systemic thing into it. Of course – so – now, that's not to say there isn't such a thing as systemic racism, racism without racists. It could exist – There's a number of ways it could exist that are measurable and testable. So one could be, let's say, uh, people in uh, predominantly African-American areas would charge more for car insurance, even when we take into account the level of crime and the the property values and all the other variables we use to assess uh, car insurance premiums. And let's say that that uh, higher car insurance premium was put in for a racist reason, a kind of redlining kind of reason, Uh, and hasn't been reformed to now. Well, you should be able to show that by simply taking account of all the other factors and saying, hey, there's this unexplained penalty that people in this area continue to pay, right? That is a kind of scientific approach for saying, this is racist, get rid of this uh, premium, please. Uh, You know, as opposed to uh, these grand sweeping charges of, of systemic racism, which underpin uh, critical race theory and and things that derive from it. That's just an example of of where I just think that again on race, gender, and sexuality, there's a suspension of reason and disbelief in uh, in academia, for example, which seeps into parts of the media. The media is not is is generally better, actually, on this. But the problem is you've got an inability to confront the unreason that's going on on the left means it makes it harder to be credible when you're going after the plentiful unreason on the right. So it's just an example of where I think we have to start to sort of see reforms on, uh, on both sides really.
1: So it sounds like you're skeptical and you want hard data to measure Uh, to then create a framework to move forward. Is it, how hard is it to measure culture?
0: Well, to measure, cu- I mean, I don't, it depends what you mean by culture, right? Are you talking about group differences in outcomes or, I mean, we can certainly get people subjective, you know, what do you identify as? I guess i
1: yeah, I guess I'm talking about a culture that simply has any sort of different reaction or thought based on a skin phenotype.
0: Um, I think that's quite doable and quite measurable, uh, in many ways, so you could do survey experiments where you show people the the same person, but you maybe vary their skin color, you maybe vary their um, appearance in some way, and and try and and measure people's reactions to those images. And and so that's that's one way. And and that's you know there is research on that. Um, there are the CV resume studies, but those have to be done very carefully. Those tend to show the strongest discrimination against those with very foreign names. Typically, Muslims would tend to get the come off worst in those CV studies. Um, the African American ones are trickier to do because you, if you use a surname that is very character, one thing that's been done is they've used surnames that are very characteristically African American. I'm sorry, first names. You know, like I don't know Trey Sean or something. You know, yeah. But the problem is, to the extent those names are associated with not just race but also class the study becomes in some way uh, that introduces bias. It'd be if you were studying whether Jimmy Bob uh, gets as many callbacks as, you know, Nigel, right? So you've kind of, I'm trying to think of some kind of upper middle class name, but there's also a class, so, so you have to do these studies properly, but that is one way of showing that, yes, you know, there's still a problem, let's say, in a certain sector. Um, where one group's not getting as many callbacks, even if they have the same qualifications in CV. So that would be a way of, of measuring it, or you could do these survey experiments. Um, you could ask people, you know, for example, do you feel pressure to say, to make racist jokes, uh, even when you don't want to on a survey, right? If you had a police department, let's say where, People didn't really want to make these jokes, but they, they felt peer pressure to make them. I think that's a good example of structural racism, where the individual might not be racist, but they're kind of feeling pressure to to, to join in. So there's many different ways you could actually do this measurement, um, do it properly. You don't have but the problem is the, this critical race theory comes out of an activist discipline which which was emerging through essentially protest and occupation demanding black studies positions, these positions becoming created. They are highly connected to ideology, not very properly connected to methodology. Uh, And then the literature spinning out from there with very little checking of its claims because there's no viewpoint diversity. Everybody's got the same politics, like 100%. So there's absolutely no way, without any viewpoint diversity, you can't arrive at an advancement of knowledge in a scientific way where people are really criticizing each other, falsifying, attempting counter-arguments. That whole process is broken down entirely in these disciplines. And and unfortunately we're now seeing the outcome of that in these crazy ideas um, which are being propagated and, and don't rest on a base of proper evidence.
1: Yeah. So it sounds like you're saying a lot of these viewpoints and... I don't have a good phrase for it, but anyways, the posi- the position that you are you're speaking about, it's come out of an activist framework. When and the way I think about that, it had to happen that way because when you have people that are literally enslaved because of their skin color, and then they are subject to Jim Crow laws because of their skin skin color, you have to have activism, and. So I guess what you're arguing is activism's run its course. It's time for something different, which which is which is a big claim because I guess it's it's one view against another view and you're and you're because other people are saying, well, we actually need more activism, that train hasn't run its course yet. And and you're asking for a little more scientific understanding of where these uh, systems and and the cultures could actually residing?
0: Yeah, I, I think, um, I mean, activism is fine. I mean, in a way, I think I'm, I'm very much against the idea of activist scholarship. I think scholarship should be scholarship and activism should be activism. I mean, I also think, though, with activism that, I mean, you can be more or less evidence-based and more or less ideological. Like, so if, if your activism mm-hmm. is is Ideological, with very little interest in policy and evidence-based policy. I guess I would see that as as much less constructive if it's all about shouting slogans and turning your brain off in a way. And it, sometimes you need that. Sometimes it's a very simple thing, ending slavery. Yeah, I mean, right. Um, but in other cases, like now it, we're talking about systemic and structural racism, it's really slippery and it's not resting on very much, very sound application of principle or, or evidence. Um, so I just think that the, the quotient of evidence and principle has depleted dramatically compared to, let us say, prior to the Voting Rights Act or where you had very clear violations of doctrines of equal treatment under the law, due process, all, all of these long standing liberal enlightenment principles where you had violations and they were easy to document Systemic racism would have, would have been dead easy to document in the u s South in one thousand nine hundred and fifty five um, You could just look at oh separate water fountains, uh, rules for uh, shoppers in, in stores and, and so it would have been easy right to, to evidence these things um, so, but but now, moving from that equality of treatment to equality of outcome is in my mind a, a retrogressive step. I mean, you can still be concerned with the quality of outcome. But you have to, instead of saying, we're just going to institute a quota, um, you actually need to do the work of saying, okay, what is causing this inequality of outcome and how do we fix that in such a way that doesn't lead to the abridgment of of the liberties of of the population, of the the scientific principles? I I think that would be a, a much more constructive way to proceed. And maybe that means that the age of just, you know, the age of just protesting and activism, that that's maybe counterproductive or maybe it's. You know, in prior to 1965, where the principles were clear, but you just had a lack of mobilization, then maybe mobilization is what you needed and you needed to get the emotions up and get active. And that was what was needed. But once you move to a situation where it's much less clear what the evidence and the principles are, then I think more of the work needs to go into actually doing the hard uh, policy based work to figure out what is the best, most effective policy. What is going on here? And less into the protest and the and the sort of emotional side. So, whereas in fact, what we seem to be seeing is a lot more of investment into that emotional side, uh, which I think has actually been quite destructive now, because again, it lacks that evidence base. As we saw with the George Floyd Black Lives Matter thing, the uh, I mean, the average um, you know something like seven in ten white uh, left left leaning white Americans think that. Um, more black men are killed. More young black men are killed by the police than die in car accidents. The ratio is about ten to one the other way. Um, just as an example of of the sort of distorted perceptions that have been created by the media narrative and by people's ideologies, I think we need to get to a position where people's ideolo- uh, perceptions are more in line with the actual data, and and people are focusing more on constructive policy solutions. Because so, what's the outcome of the outcome of not teaching math in schools or having testing or having policing or you know all the outcome of all that is actually pretty bad for the groups that you're supposed to be helping right I mean when the murder rate shoots up and when classes are disorderly and no one can learn anything who's going to be who's going to be affected it 's not going to be wealthy white educated people right um, so that 's just to say that I just think that the um, the marginal rate of return to activism maybe in, in certain areas has gone down. Yeah.
1: Interesting. Well, Eric, thank you so much for spending the hour with me talking about this <laughs> stuff. It, it, uh, Great. you know, it, it's, in yeah, it's incredibly fascinating and I certainly hope we have a positive spiral <laughs> as, yeah, you know. as you phrased it. Um, you know, I, I, uh, I hear you've got a small faction of students trying to
0: cancel you at your university. Well, that's kind of it's kind of blown over now. Um, okay, you know, it, it's a sort of standard technique, I, I guess. You know, there was a case here called someone called Kathleen Stock, who's a gender critical feminist, who was hounded out of her university by um, I wouldn't say trans activists necessarily, but people who are just kind of progressives who are sympathetic to the trans cause, who wanted to made her life a living hell, you know, and I guess compared to that, I got off comparatively lightly. Um, But yeah, you have this progressive intolerance on campus. Uh, It's not especially bad at where I am, uh, but it's, this is part of the problem, right? Is how do we, how do we actually reinforce uh, enlightenment values, that idea of uh, freedom of expression, of due process, of, of, Scientific method all of those things have kind of taken a hit and we're into the realm of, of uh, politics of emotion um, and so yeah I think trying to return to some of those enlightenment principles is, is where we need to go but yeah so so far I'm still alive that's the <laughs>
1: yeah yeah well that's great and um, you know that's where we need to head is being able to talk about things that are very challenging and do it. On a on a reasonable way, because there's there's going to be people that listen to this and are, are extremely angry at the things you've said, but but hopefully we can come to a place where we can do that in a manner where we're not thinking less of the person, mm-hmm. and we can at least say, you know, what you're human, I'm human. We have different we have different beliefs, we have different assumptions, but as long as we're not treating people less. <clears throat> and, you know, I, I, I certainly don't know how to move forward in the moment that we're in,
0: but. Yeah. I mean, I know. I'd agree with you on it. I mean, I think there is a, there's an interesting book by a Yale. Um, I think he's a psychologist um, called against empathy, which is, you know, part of his argument is you know, we, we need to have compassion, but this idea that we are, the problem is if you, attach yourself very much to the plight of a certain group or cause often the flip side of that is you demonize those who you think are causing the misery and and that's fine if it's very clear cut but if it's kind of hazy and complex and nuanced and you're imposing a very simplistic black and white picture onto what's actually quite a tricky picture then actually that leads to more entrenched positions so it's trying to to understand reality is complicated Uh, And even if you identify a problem, it doesn't mean that uh, there's a simple solution, that the solution could be worse. What you think is the solution, like a quota or not teaching math or whatever, actually could be much, much worse in terms of the outcome. So you have to have done the work of saying, let's do a randomized controlled trial or let's sort of do a survey experiment and, and yeah, this shows that this could, could well work, so let's let's go with it. I mean, it's that sort of shift away from simple uh, positive valence towards this and therefore a negative valence towards that to much more of an understanding of the complexity of the world because it is, it's a difficult place and, you know, knowledge, we have to be a bit more humble, I think, in terms of um, what we can know about the world.
1: hmm great well if folks want to find more of your work eric work in the head
0: well i'm on the uh on the web at www.snaps.net s-n-e-p-s.net and that sort of talks about my books and, and all the any papers i've written or articles i've written that's probably the easiest thing i'm also on twitter at e-p-k-a-u-f-m
1: okay great well eric thanks so much i really appreciate it
0: thanks bradford and uh all the best
1: Listening to other YouTube channels, I hear a lot of the smashing the like button. I'd like to suggest you gently click it. It's to be nicer on your computer and probably longevity for your technology anyway. So likely click that subscribe button, like, rate, and review. It is the best way to help us reach more audience, more people, and that way we can keep producing content every week. Make sure to drop a comment below who you'd like us to interview next, and we look forward to seeing you next week.